And now your host. Welcome back to the program, Mom. Zev Brenner, I think it's been quite a while since we last had Dean Henry Abramson, the Dean and Professor of Lander College of Arts and Sciences. We spent time together on a wonderful cruise, and he gave such great lectures. It was great to have him uh, aboard. And uh, today I came across an article in the Jewish Telegraphic Agency, which caught my attention, where uh, he talks about this deadly tragedy of Yiddish performance is the reason it's illegal to fire in a crowded theater has political implications of what's happening today. So, Professor and Dean, Henry Abramson, thank you for joining us again. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's a real pleasure. Thank you. So, you know, we're all geared and ready to see next week there's going to be an impeachment trial in the Senate and the president of the United States is going to say that free speech is involved, and you know, and then they're going to say the limits on free speech. They're going to say he cries, it's like crying, calling fry, you know, calling out fire in a crowded theater. So tell us about. Let's begin with the Yiddish part of of your article. So before we get to the current political implications, uh, let's look at what happened. Yeah, sure. That uh, be my and, pleasure. And I guess so, how the whole fire uh, in the theater came about. Yeah. So when I. Just yesterday, the president's uh, defense attorneys filed a brief, and they have two essential arguments. One is that the trial is not constitutional, and the other is that the uh, speech that's really in question, um, the, the uh, January 6th speech uh, in which he spoke about, you know, you have to fight like hell and things like that, uh, he argued that the, that's protected speech by the First Amendment. So uh, when I read that and I saw a lot of the political pundits writing about uh, actually something that's fairly obvious, the United States Supreme Court made a landmark decision in 1919 called Schenck versus United States, in which uh, a, a Supreme Court justice, Oliver Wendell Holmes, placed a very clear and memorable limitation on freedom of speech, uh, which is specifically that one may not falsely cry out fire in a theater. And uh, that's when I remembered the uh, horrible 1887 tragedy that occurred in East End London regarding a, uh, a Hebrew dramatic club. It was a theater in which precisely that happened. And so when I did a little bit more digging, I saw that, you know, in fact, uh, that is probably precisely the event that Oliver Wendell Holmes was referring to. Uh, because he himself was a great fan of the theater. He traveled to London quite frequently in his youth and even published articles that uh, were his own theater reviews of what he saw in London. So that, that's really the tragic Jewish backstory to that um, Supreme Court decision of 1919. I never realized it was based on, the, on a Yiddish play or Yiddish theater. Yeah, yeah, precisely. Sad but true. But yeah, it's yeah, a wow. great example of... Uh, you know, the, the real tragedy that that occurs, um, and, and we're grateful to uh, Justice Holmes for making it part of the American political vocabulary. Wow. It's so, uh, it's amazing how everything traces back one way or another to the Jews, right? Because I heard that expression, you can't cry fire in a crowded theater. That's been, you know, you can have First Amendment right up until that point in time, but I didn't realize where, where it came from. You also write about, about another incident. In the Talmud. Yeah, there's um, actually a discussion in Gemara Shabbos that uh, speaks about the ban on a particular kind of hobnailed shoe or sandal that, uh, you know, you, 
people back then in the first century, actually this was the second century most likely, uh, would put like nails that stuck out of the bottom of their shoes like cleats to uh, give them greater traction when they're farming and things. And they were all crowded in a cave, probably during the Hadrianic persecution of the 130s, uh, the one that's, that's primarily associated with the death of Rebbe Akiva, the Asarahu And they were all crowded in this dark cave. And then they thought, there are two, actually two versions of the Talmud, but they thought that the Romans were approaching. And so rather than being trapped in this cave, they all scrambled to get out. And in the ensuing chaos, they, uh, they killed each other, uh, stamping on each other with these hobnailed boots. And so the the rabbis actually made a ban on these particular kinds of footwear as a result. No, it's, it's interesting, but the question, though, that I guess we're going to be grappling with, and I'm sure you're grappling with as well, is the limits of free speech today. In the case of the Yiddish theater, it was a tragedy because the fire was really contained and somebody cried fire. It was a stage fire. Right? We're not completely sure of all the circumstances, but yet it led to a stampede, it led to people dying. The question, though, is is how far does free speech go today? It's a metaphor, yelling fire in a theater. How far does it go? I think, uh, any thoughts about that? Um, you know, I, I'm hesitant to speak about the present moment in particular. I'm a historian, so I deal much better with the past than I do with the present or the future. But I think that, uh, you know, the... The decision of Schenck versus United States, which uh, produced this memorable phrase, uh, is actually quite clear and and I think is very relevant to our times. What what uh, Oliver Wendell Holmes argued when he authored that majority opinion, he wrote that um, the most stringent protection of free speech would not protect a man in falsely shouting fire in a theater and causing a panic because, he wrote, it created a clear and present danger and a subsequent evil that would result. So, uh, you know, I don't know how to make the analysis to the contemporary situation, but it seems to me very clear in his logic that any speech that a person would engage in that would be reasonably assumed to be of danger to others should not be protected by the First Amendment. If, are you curious about the specifics of that particular case, by the way? Yes, of course. Yeah, so it's a fascinating case because it had nothing to do with the theater, nothing to do with fire. It was a case where uh, an individual was distributing flyers uh, encouraging young American men to avoid conscription in World War I. In other words, he was publicizing uh, and urging men to break the law. And uh, when he was arrested for this, his defense was that this is part of my First Amendment right to express myself. I don't think people should be signing up to fight in World War I. And I think they should you know, not be doing so. And so he was publishing these flyers. And in the back and forth of the case, uh, the decision was that, no, you cannot, um, you cannot say things that are likely to cause people to break the law. So the metaphor from the theater is much more pungent because, of course, unfortunately, 17 people died as a result of that, that stampede in the, in the East End London theater. Um, but uh, that's essentially the metaphor that, that uh, Wendell Holmes wanted to connect to the uh, case of the conscription flyers. But there's, a, there's maybe a difference because if you, if you encourage people to break any law, 
that's what it sounds like, then you could be, your free speech may be compromised or you cannot engage in that. Here we're talking about in the case of a theater where you're calling fire, where people are actually going to die. It's a different standard, or is it, in your opinion? Uh, that's a good question. It's really more for a legal mind, again, than a historian, <laughs> but, it, but it seems like a Calvachomer that um, if we would say <clears throat> that it's illegal to publish and distribute some flyers because of the remote possibility that people might not sign up to fight in the war, and that would present risks to soldiers who were fighting because they didn't have sufficient numbers, how much more so can we see clearly how dangerous it is in the case of the crowded theater? Uh, but it's essentially the same argument, and you're right, it seems to boil down to uh, counseling people to break the law. In other words, if, if that indeed is the case, then it can have much, and if, if it's going to be applied from what you're saying, and, I, and uh, what you're saying is that it's a much greater situation. In other words, our freedom of speech is much more limited if we took the, the real implications of that case. Uh, yeah, I would think so. Again, I, I'm not in comfortable territory here because I'd rather talk about 1887. No, no, than, no. But, but I'm saying, but I'm, I forget what's happening in Washington with the with the with the trial. If you're going to take what the actual court case evolves about, the, the, putting up a flyer which encourages people to break the law by not uh, being conscripted into the army, and apply it, if if I tell somebody break the law and go through a red light. So if I say that I can be arrested for it based on that, I'm just looking from that perspective. It seems like a much, much greater restrictions on freedom of speech. I think that's quite correct. And it seems to me that what would be appropriate for Schenck to have done would be something like put up flyers saying, um, let your congressman know you do not think this is, a, you know, an appropriate conscription. That let your congressman know that the draft should not be imposed. That kind of thing is perfectly legal because it's, it's engaging people and, you know, people are allowed to engage in political debate about policy. But telling people to break the law with the expectation that they actually will is apparently not protected, at least in my layman's read of that. No, it sounds very interesting. In your historical research, have you seen cases where this law has been broadly applied? Uh. Outside of my area of specialization in Jewish history, I, I don't, I'm not familiar with too many of these. Um, I think it does actually step on Jewish history, though, in a few key areas where, and this is a sticky thing for America in particular, because a lot of other countries don't deal with these problems in the same way. What about hate speech? Right? Like, what is, the, what is the threshold at which people can espouse anti-Semitic views and express them before they are actually threatening other human beings. Like if someone gets up and says, you know, I don't know, um, Jews are negative characteristic X, whatever it is, that, that's hard to, I think, prosecute um, as being something that would cause actual harm to Jews. It's not nice, but, and I'm sure the Chavetz Chaim wouldn't appreciate it, but, but I don't think that it's illegal. But if they were to say that, you should go out and beat the Jews, then that would certainly be a uh, not limited, not protected by the First Amendment. But if I would say all Jews should die, for example, I didn't say anybody should do anything, would that also fall in that same category? Uh, you know, I think what 
Oliver Wendell Holmes wanted to say is if it is a clear and present danger that you would have a reasonable assumption that people would act on your suggestion, then yes, it would be dangerous and not protected by First Amendment. That's, I think, the, the crux of the argument about President Trump's speech was, did he have a reasonable assumption that the words that he was speaking would result in something like the Capitol Hill riot. If he did, then that's not protected speech. Right. And that's uh, and, and there's a different other question of whether it's constitutional or not. But certainly I found it fascinating about, you know, the limits of free speech based on the actual case. And uh, you're the first time that I've come across this was in your article. So I, I wonder if ever anybody's going to use that as a means to restrict speech. And maybe can Twitter or Facebook or any of these other social media giants that are monitoring speech use that as their standard? I'm wondering. Yeah, no, that's a, that's also a fascinating observation and question, and uh, obviously a very pressing problem that ironically is affecting both the left and the right in American politics. The uh, the technology companies have uh, traditionally, or you know, it's not that long a tradition, but for the last decade or so, they've relied on the the notion that they're not really a media company; they're not really providing news. All they're doing is providing a platform for people to discuss the news. So that gives them a much lower threshold of responsibility to police what is on their, um, on their medium, like on YouTube or on Facebook or whatever. And, and maybe it's time to change that. Maybe that's something that uh, we really do have to pay attention to. What's your next article going to be about? Oh, I don't know. For, for JTA, I, I tend to, I have a great editor there named Laura Adkins, and I just got a sense of what kind of things appeal to her, and when they pop in my head, I wrote that article in about, uh, I don't know, about an hour, because it just, it basically wrote itself. Uh, what I'm working on, though, uh, quite uh, with a lot of effort right now, is, is a major three-volume study of the history of the Jews for Koran publishers in Jerusalem. And that's that's a major uh, project for me. I hope to have the first volume finished this summer. And um, that's what takes up most of my energy. I look forward to that. And I look forward to hearing more of your lectures. Fascinating. Thank you. That's very kind of you. Dean Henry Abramson is Dean and Professor of Lander College of Arts and Sciences, Mahon Lepernos Institute for Professional Studies. Thank you. Thank you for shedding us some light. And I just feel chilled by the limits of free speech. I thought we have, have much more expansive based on our conversation tonight. I see it's a lot more limited, and we're going to have to explore that. But there's certainly some interesting food for thought. Oh, my pleasure. I'm glad that you found it stimulating. Thank you. And we're going to be right back. Don't go away. Stay tuned. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Talkline Network Radio, America's longest-running Jewish broadcast network, the voice of the Jewish community.